1 Samuel 21, starting in verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, uh, take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Ashish, the king of Gath. Moving to chapter 22, uh, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, captain over your bodyguard, and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. The king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. 
But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. This is the word of God. Please be seated. We are in the middle of a sermon series on the rise of David in 1 Samuel. We have seen that God has chosen him. We have seen that he has sought ways to achieve the throne by his own means through the killing of Goliath, through the shaming of Saul, through alliances with Jonathan, the crown prince, with uh, Michal, the royal princess. And in the two chapters previous to today's reading, we have seen both Jonathan and Michal help David to escape from Saul, who is seated on the throne, who wants to kill David. And now we come to this chapter. David flees from Saul because Jonathan has made him aware that his father, the king, actually does intend to kill him. And so he flees to Nob, to Ahimelech, and that's where we pick it up. I just want to ask you the question, has anyone here ever served on jury duty? Anyone? I've been told that's a thing that we do in democracies. None of us have. Well, one of us this week will probably get called for jury duty now that I brought it up. Um, But today, what I would like to do is to summon all of you to jury duty. Because we have a very complex text before us, and it's not easy to understand or to know who is right and who is wrong. If you're the jury, well, who's on trial? Well, on trial today is none other than King Saul. What's the charge? Well, the charge comes to us down through the ages that King Saul, in a paranoid, jealous rage, is guilty of war crimes against humanity and the killing of Ahimelech and the priests at Nob. So then who is the defending attorney? That would be me. My task this morning is to present to you, the jury, that Saul is innocent of these charges. He is not guilty of war crimes. He is not guilty of being in, a, in an insane, uh, jealous rage to kill Ahimelech and the priest at Nob. But in fact, Ahimelech and the priest at Nob are guilty of conspiracy and treason. And Saul was right to find them guilty. I'm going to pray for us as we open our court case. And then I'm going to begin by delivering what I would suggest might be the closing statements of a the defending attorney in a case like this. 
And then we will backtrack and take a look at the evidence. What brought me as the defending attorney for King Saul to defend him against these charges of war crimes? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take a look at your word today, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and, and, and teach us, instruct us, minister to us. And I pray for everyone here that you would minister to them according to their unique need. For we all come today with different needs, different, uh, different weaknesses, different aches, different injuries of soul. And I pray that as we take a look at your word today, we would be filled to overflowing. Help me to be faithful in my interpretation of this, your sacred scripture. And in all of this, help us to see Christ. Help us to understand what is it about this text that helps us to understand the gospel in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, these are the facts of the case that have been laid before us. David fled to Nob for fear of his life. He alleged to Ahimelech, the priest at Nob, that he was on an urgent and important mission from the king. He also alleged that he was to rendezvous with his men at such and such a place, wherever that may be. Now, I have shown over the course of this court proceeding that both of these claims by David at Nob on that day were, in fact, patently false. He was lying. The king had not sent him on a mission. David was not going to rendezvous with his men. He was, in fact, very much alone. He was fleeing from the king because he had tried to usurp the king's authority in Gibeah. Now, it is under this very pretense that he commandeered a weapon, the sword of Goliath. And it is under this very pretense that he commandeered food, the ceremonial showbread in the tabernacle. And he commandeered both of these things from Ahimelech, the priest. What else do we know about the facts? Doeg, the Edomite, was at Nob that day. He has testified as such. Doag reported what he had seen on that day to the king, to Saul, my defendant, at a later date. When the king heard of Doag's testimony, he was enraged. And yes, he did summon Ahimelech and all of his house and all of the priests and all of their belongings. And he brought the priests of Nob before him in the royal court. And he charged them with high treason and conspiracy for colluding with David against the crown. The king then issued the verdict of guilty and ordered the execution of 85 priests, plus their wives, plus their children, plus their infants, their ox, their donkeys, and their sheep. And who was the executioner of this royal court? was none other than Doag the Edomite, who, as has already been said, 
had been there on that day when David had allegedly deceived Ahimelech and the priests at Nob. Now, the prosecution has been brilliant, and he has tried to convince you in this war crimes tribunal that the king acted in cruel madness and paranoia. He has accused the king of unwarranted genocide against a helpless and innocent people who had been unfairly deceived by David in, on that day at Nob. Yes, the prosecutor has spun tales. He has spun tales of Davidic deception, tales of Ahimelech's total innocence, of the conflict between David and Saul, and tales of the unhinged insanity of the king. He'll have you believe that the king is guilty of war crimes, war crimes against Ahimelech, war crimes against the priests at Nob, war crimes against their families and their property, indeed, war crimes against humanity itself. And he will whisper in your ear that you and your children could be next. We can't let the king away with such crimes against humanity. He will whisper in your ear that the king's bloodlust will never be satisfied. He will whisper in your ear that the king is a madman who must be put to rest. And while the plea of insanity might alleviate my client, the king, of his criminal responsibility, I have argued day in and day out against this, in, before this tribunal that the king acted with a clear mind, that he rightly discerned the treasonous plot hatched against him at Nob, and of the premeditated conspiracy and collusion of David and Ahimelech and the priests of Nob against the crown. Is the king guilty of war crimes? Is he guilty of murder against Ahimelech, the priest of Nob, their wives, their children, their infants, their livestock? You must decide. The king's fate is in your hands. And so would end my speech if you were the jury and I, this was a war crimes tribunal. Now, in that speech of closing arguments, I asserted that King Saul rightly discerned the guilt of Ahimelech and the priests of Nob for colluding with David in an act of conspiracy against the crown. Now, the penalty for conspiracy and treason in most states, in most times, including today, is execution. Now, we might argue that Saul went too far in killing the women and the children and the livestock, and I can't deny that. I'm taking my hat off as defending attorney, and now I'm just the preacher. You know, he went too far. That was not right. That wasn't good. But we have to also contextualize this, right? This is back in, in an ancient culture, in an ancient time, where if the, the man of the house is guilty of treason, the whole house is guilty of treason, and you can't have little Johnny growing up to uh, 
avenge the death of his father against the crown. So while we may not agree and we could get into whether or not he was right or wrong about that, that's not where I want to focus. Where we're going to focus today is this. Was Ahimelech and the priest at Nob guilty of conspiracy and treason against King Saul and the royal court? And there's much evidence to suggest that that is exactly the case. That David and Ahimelech and the priest at Nob had a premeditated conspiracy against King Saul. And so now what we must do is exhibit the evidence. What's the evidence for this? How can we conclude that David and the priests of Nob colluded against King Saul in a conspiracy of treason? Serious charges in any state, in any culture, at any time. Well, I have exhibit A through F, so let's go through our evidence. Exhibit A. David came to Nob and he came specifically to Ahimelech. Take a look at chapter 21, verse 1. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. It's just absolutely clear. And, and really implicit there is that this is not an accidental coming. He went to a particular place and to a particular man. Uh, now what's really important is the context, right? In the email that I sent out this week, I encourage you to read chapter 19 and 20 because in those chapters, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, David has felt the temperature rising in the royal court. And although he has married into the royal family, so Princess Michal is now his wife, King Saul has ratcheted up his, his attack against David because King Saul has rightly discerned that David is gunning for the throne. And we've talked about that in weeks past. David wants to be king. He was anointed king. He wants the kingship. He's not happy to just bide his time. He is being very shrewd, very calculated to make a series of political moves, that, and he's moving toward checkmate. He wants to get Saul out of the way. Saul's not delusional. He is demon-possessed. But he's not delusional. He sees precisely what David is doing, and he's right. Now, what's really important for us is that Saul's son, the crown prince Jonathan, and Saul's daughter, Michal, the princess, the wife of David, are working with David against their father. That's, that's no small thing. If you're Saul, that, that hurts. And it doesn't just hurt on the emotional level. It hurts at a very deep level. Uh, this is, it's their kingdom that's at stake, and they're willing to give it all away to David. The other little bit of information that is really important is chapter 19, verses 18 to 24. We're not going to read that, but let me just summarize that for you. David had previously escaped when things got too hot in the royal court. He escaped to Ramah. Now, what's at Ramah? No, not a casino. Samuel, the prophet. So David, when, 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 he when things were getting too dangerous for him in Saul's house, he fled to Samuel. That makes sense because Samuel's always had control and authority over the king. And what we read in those verses is that Saul says, well, I don't care if he's with Samuel or not. I'm going to find him and I'm going to kill him. And so he sends servants to go and get him. And every time they got close to Ramah, the Spirit of the Lord would fill them and they would fall down, slain in the Spirit, and start prophesying. So Saul would send more servants, and they would go, and they would get close to Ramah, and the Holy Spirit would fall on them. They'd fall down, and they'd start prophesying. In fact, what you have here is a force field of the Holy Spirit around Ramah so that David is absolutely safe. 
Saul himself goes. If my servants can't go, I'm going to go. Saul himself goes. He's going to rip David out of Samuel's house and kill him himself. But he too gets filled with the Holy Spirit, not, not because the Spirit is endorsing him or what he's doing, but to protect David. And he falls down, and he can't get to David. God is a fortress for David. So if things are getting a little too hot in Gibeah, just go back to Ramah. That's the safe place. That's your fortress. That's your safe haven. But that's not where David goes. David goes to Nob. David goes to Ahimelech. Why? Just hold that in your mind. That's exhibit A. Exhibit B. Ahimelech's meeting with David. In the second part of verse 1, we see, And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling. That's important. If you're into underlining in your Bible, you underline trembling. He came to meet David, trembling, and he said to him, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Why did Ahimelech run to meet David outside of Nob? So David is on his way to Nob. Ahimelech sees him alone, runs to him. He's trembling, and he he asks two very peculiar questions. He says, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? So why did Ahimelech run to meet David? Why was he trembling? Why did Ahimelech expect David to arrive at Nob with more people? Hold that in your mind. Exhibit C. David asks some questions of Ahimelech. If this is an accidental meeting, these are peculiar questions. He says, and David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, here's the questions. What do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. What is David looking for? Is he really looking for bread? What does David mean when he says, or whatever is here? What do you have on hand? Give me some bread. Or whatever you have on hand. Hold those questions in your mind. Exhibit D. Doeg the Edomite. Take a look at verse 7. Now. A certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Notice, Doag is an Edomite. He is a senior civil servant of King Saul, in charge of all the shepherds, in charge of the, the food supply, the meat in the kingdom. What's his significance? Exhibit E. The sword of Goliath, verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, 
So remember, David is speaking to him like he's just asked for, what do you have on hand? Give me some bread or whatever you have on hand. Now, David follows up with this question or this statement. Then, have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? Do you see the similarities there? Whatever you have at hand. Do you not have a spear or a sword at hand? Wink, wink. For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. Now, just as an aside, we know that David is lying. What we don't know at this point, does Ahimelech know that David is lying? But we know that the king didn't send him on urgent business. Take a look at verse 9. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Was David looking just for bread? Give, what do you have on hand? Give me some bread. Or whatever you have on hand. What does Ahimelech have on hand? It is the sword. It is the sword of Goliath that David came to Nob to collect. It is the sword that brought David to Nob, not bread. He's not coming to fill his stomach. He's coming to fill his uh, weaponry. He's wanting to fill his hand with a weapon because things have got hot in the royal court. Now, when is the last time we heard of Goliath's sword? Chapter 17, verse 54. Just flip back. This is extremely important. Chapter 17, verse 54. David went out onto the battlefield against Goliath, the giant. And as we know, he hit him in the forehead with a stone. He fell backward, dead or alive, we don't know. But we do know this. David ran up to the giant who was laying on the ground, pulled the sword of Goliath, the very same sword that he's collecting now from Nob, pulled it out of its sheath and cut off the head of the giant and brought both back to King Saul. Now, what did he do with the head? What did he do with the sword? Verse 54. A very important verse. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. Now, we talked about that. He did that because he was thinking ahead. He was thinking politically. One day, I'm going to be king. I need a capital. J Jerusalem is right between the north and the south. It is well fortified, and we have not yet taken it. It's neutral ground. I will set up my kingdom there. He took the head to do uh, some reconnaissance. He says, I need to get in the city somehow. I'll tell them I have a great story. He goes in, drops the head in the middle of the town square and says, this is what happened. And everyone loves it. And that while he's there, he figures out where the weak spot is in the defenses of Jabus, which becomes Jerusalem. It's the water shaft. We're well ahead of ourselves. But I, I reiterate that because I want you to know that David is thinking politically. He's constantly scheming. He's constantly plotting. He's constantly thinking to himself, how do I get myself on the throne? And once I'm on the throne, what do I need to do? Now look at the second part of verse 54. And he put Goliath's armor in his tent. Where's his tent? 
Well, we don't know. It's either on the front lines because he was going back and forth between the, f- the sheep in Jesse's fields in Bethlehem and, and being Saul's music therapist on the front lines in the Valley of Elah. So it could have been at the Valley of Elah. It could have been at Bethlehem. It doesn't matter. What matters is this is David's tent. He takes the armor of Goliath, which includes a sword, by the way, and he buries a hole underneath his tent and he stashes the armor there. That's the last we hear of it until today. So David had Goliath's sword stashed in his tent. Now, all of a sudden, it's stashed behind the ephod at the tabernacle at Nob. How did it get there? It didn't just sprout legs and walk over, that is for sure. Sometime between chapter 17, verse 54, and 21, verse 1, David took the sword of Goliath to Nob. And when he came to Nob, He says, I need someone I can trust. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to be working pretty hard to climb the ladder so that I can sit on the throne in Israel. Now, it's going to happen. Now, we don't know exactly, but this is what we need to read into what's going on here. David might have said, I plan to raise up a mutiny within Israel. The the armed forces, the army loves me at just the right time. I will rendezvous with the army here. I will collect the sword of Goliath, which is my trophy and reminds everyone that I am the leader of Israel and not Saul. And then we will coup d'etat the king in Gibeah. That's one option. The other option is, he said, it's going to get hot for me in the royal house. I need an escape route. If it gets too hot for me, if if my life is in danger, I need someone I can trust. I'm going to come to you, and when I come to you, I'm going to need some supplies. And I will pick up the sword of Goliath there, then, and I will continue on my way. David, it seems, was not content to sit with Samuel in Ramah and wait it out. He had a plan. He was going to take the throne by military coup d'etat. Now, exhibits D and E. What are those again? Doag the Edomite and the sword of Goliath give us crucial information for understanding verses 1 through 6. If we're going to rightly interpret verses 1 through 6, we have to understand that we get information absolutely crucial to the interpretation of the text. And it's given to us late. We don't know in verses 1 to 6 two things about the plot. Number one, that Doag is there. We find that out in verse 7. Number two, we don't know that the sword of Goliath is there. We find that out uh, in verse 8 and 9. We call this narrative technique delayed exposition. Exposition is information that is required to rightly interpret the plot. So, so in, any, in any retelling of, of a story, whether it's a, a, a true story like this one or a false story or a fable, there's information that the narrator gives you that you need to have in order to make good judgments about what's going on in the plot. Delayed exposition is that, that um, technique by which that crucial information is withheld at the beginning. So you're, you're going along, and if you're just reading verses 1 through 6, you think that David is deceiving Ahimelech. There's some strange things going on, but you're not ex- entirely sure what to make of it. Then you get to these two pieces of delayed exposition, and you say, oh, 
one of Saul's senior civil servants is there, and the sword of Goliath, which was previously in David's possession, is there. Therefore, in light of that information, what do I make of what preceded my knowledge of that information? And you have to go back and reread verses 1 through 6. So let's answer the questions that we asked when I laid before you exhibits A through D. Why did Ahimelech run to meet David outside of town? Ahimelech ran to meet David because one of Saul's senior civil servants was in town. He couldn't afford to let David come into Nob. Ahimelech had to run out and greet David. And we don't know. Remember, we're just getting this text as if we're listening to the radio. If this was a movie, we might see all kinds of gestures taking place between David and Ahimelech. Uh, Ahimelech might be saying, as, like, you know, like gesturing with his hands, saying, there is a guy in town. You have to pretend like you don't know me. You have to pretend like we don't have something going on. We don't know that for sure, but it's very likely that that took place. We do know that Ahimelech ran out to meet David. Now, if they had never met before, what are the chances that Ahimelech runs out to meet David? He'd just wait for David to come into town. That's just the normal thing to do. But he had to warn him about something. Second question, why was Ahimelech trembling? Ahimelech was trembling. He was afraid for his life because Doag, the Edomite, one of Saul's senior civil servants, might discover that he and David were conspiring against the king. That's why he's afraid. There's no other reason to be afraid. David's not an enemy. There's no reason to be afraid of David. He's not afraid of David. He's afraid of Doag. Why did Ahimelech expect David to arrive at Nob with more people? Why are you alone? Why are there not more people with you? Ahimelech likely expected David to arrive at Nob with more people because he expected David to rendezvous at Nob with a mutinous army ready to overthrow Saul. That is likely what the plan had been. Why are you alone? This isn't going according to plan. He was surprised to see that David was alone, which means that Ahimelech expected something else. And what is the else? The only alternative to being alone is to be with other people. He expected a greater crowd. David, you can't overthrow the king by yourself. Was David really looking for bread? No. He might have been hungry, but he was looking for the sword of Goliath. And the motif of the sword of Goliath is very clear in the scriptures that the sword of Goliath is a symbol of David's intent to overthrow Saul. Because when he slew the giant on the battlefield, he killed both, both uh, Goliath physically and Saul's kingship symbolically. And this information explains David's dialogue with Ahimelech. Their dialogue was a cover story created by David and Ahimelech for Doeg's sake. It was not David's deception of the priest. Give you one last bit of uh, evidence for this. David's confession. This is extremely delayed exposition. We find out what was going through David's mind on that day at the end of chapter 22. Don't go over this too quickly. Uh, chapter 22, verses 20 through 23. 
But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. When we get the episode in chapter 21, there's no mention of whether or not Ahimelech or David are aware of Doeg's presence. The narrator just simply tells us that Doeg was there. But at the end of chapter 2, we find out that David was fully aware that Doeg was there. And he also knew that Doeg would eventually tell Saul, and Saul would connect the dots and recognize that David was in a conspiracy with the priests at Nob, and that would occasion their death, that Saul would kill them. He says, I knew it on that day that we had been found out. David did nothing. But David says, now, don't be mad at me. We have the same enemy. So don't kill me, and I won't kill you. Let's become brothers and fight against our common enemy. Therefore, Saul was right. He was absolutely right. David had hatched a plan, premeditated, a conspiracy to collude with the priests at Nob to overthrow the king. Therefore, on the charge of war crimes for the killing of Ahimelech and the priests at Nob, we, the men and women of the jury, ought to find the defendant, the king, not guilty. He was right. There had been a treasonous plot against his life and against his throne. Ahimelech and the priest at Nob were guilty of conspiracy and treason, deserving of death, especially in that ancient culture. Now, we're not quite done. We're almost done, but we're not quite done. There are two more significant details, which I have mentioned, but we have to look at them in chapter 7. Take a look at, or sorry, chapter 21, verse 7. A certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Two details in this verse I want to point out to you. Number one, Doeg the Edomite was detained before the Lord. What does that mean? It means that it was the will of God that Doeg the Edomite was there that day. This is what God wanted. When David fled to Nob, it was God's will and it was God's purpose to make sure that Doag the Edomite was there. That's what it means that he was detained before the Lord. This was God's doing. This was God's planning. God made sure that Doag was there. It was providential. Second very significant detail is that Doag was an Edomite. Edomites descend not from Jacob but from Esau. Why is that important? Well, it's because this is not just some Benjaminite civil servant. This is a foreigner who has grafted himself into the house of Saul. And this becomes really important in chapter 22, verses 17 to 19. Take a look at that. After finding Ahimelech and the priest at Nob guilty, the king said to the guard who stood about him, 
turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests. Why? They're the priests of the Lord. An Israelite's not going to kill a priest of the Lord. So God made sure that it was an Edomite that was grafted into Saul's senior civil service. And it was, he made sure that it was that Edomite who was present at Nob that day. Verse 18, because the king said to Doag, you turn and strike the priests. And Doag, being an Edomite, who didn't care about the sacredness of the priests, turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod and Nob, the city of the priests. And he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. Yes, he put them all to the sword. Thus, if we connect those dots, it seems, this is where it gets uncomfortable, and this is where it becomes really important. It would seem to me that it is God who used David's treasonous conspiracy with Ahimelech and the priests at Nob. It was God who used Doeg's presence at Nob that day. And it was God who made sure that Doeg's e Edomite lineage was a part of the mix in order to put Ahimelech and the priests at Nob to death. It seems that God desired the death of Ahimelech, the priests at Nob, and their families. What? Would God want such a thing? Well, e Doeg was detained before the Lord. Why would God want to kill all of the priests at Nob? In order to answer this question, there's another significant detail that we must notice. Ahimelech is called the son of Ahitub four times in chapter 22. Four times. Ahitub is mentioned only one other time in 1 Samuel. And that's in chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Go back there. So just see what I'm doing here. Ahimelech, who it would seem God wants to put to death, and all of the priests at Nob and all of the house of, of Ahimelech and the priests at Nob, is the son of Ahitub. Who is Ahitub? Well, he's only mentioned one other time, and that's in 1 Samuel 14, verses 1 through 3. One day, and don't worry about what's going on, just notice the lineage. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Now, this is the important part, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub. There's Ahitub again. So, sorry, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub. Ichabod's brother the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Ahimelech is the son of Ahitub. 
Ahitub is the grandson of Eli. Eli was the high priest at Shiloh who adopted Samuel from Hannah. So you see the connection? This is the high priestly family. Somehow in the reign of Saul, the, the tabernacle moved from Shiloh to Nob. But it's the same family in charge. This is a high priestly family. Uh, Ahimelech is the great-grandson of Eli, the high priest. Now, go back to chapter 2. Twenty-seven. 1 Samuel 2, verse 27. Remember, we're trying to answer the question, why would God want to kill Ahimelech, the priest at Nob, and their whole families? This is the answer. Because they descended from Eli. 1 Samuel 2, verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices? And my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling. And why do you honor your sons above me? By fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares. I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from, from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. Only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. That's God speaking to Eli in chapter 2. And now, several generations later, God keeps his word. And he brings a sword in the hand of Saul because of the conspiracy and treason of David against Eli's house. You see, the Lord said to Eli, you and your sons have sinned against me greatly, and I am going to destroy your house. Everyone will die but one. And is that not what happened? One man escaped, and his name was Abiathar, and he fled to David, and he came to David, and David said, I knew on that day that Saul would find out that I had conspired treason with your family against the king, and that they were all dead. So come and be with me and be my priest. And Abiathar becomes a high priest for David. 
shares the duty with Zadok until Zadok eclipses him. And finally, when the house of Zadok rises and the house of Eli falls, the prophecy is fulfilled in total. Well, is this the God you came to worship? This is the God who is. What do we learn about God from this? We learn that God is sovereign. He is not to be played with. We cannot take this God lightly. He's he's not a safe God. He's good, as C.S. Lewis has written through the Chronicles of Narnia. He's a good God, but He's not safe. You don't play with Him. You don't fatten yourself on the sacrifices of the Lord and expect that God is going to be casual with you just because you're casual with Him. We also find out that when God says it, God will bring it to pass. God prophesied and God brought it to pass. Many generations came and went, but God will fulfill His word. Let's stay in the the dark tones of the gospel for a minute. What has God said about the final judgment? You see, this was a prophecy against Eli and his house about judgment. Judgment will come for you, Eli. Judgment will come. You cannot escape it. It doesn't matter if one generation or two generations or three generations goes. Judgment will find you out. What has God said to the human race? There is a reckoning coming. They're scoffers who say there will be no final judgment. Everything has happened uh, this day and the next, just like every day from the beginning. They overlooked this one fact. There was a day when Noah and just eight others went into an ark and God's judgment flooded the earth. And there's another judgment to come, not of water, but of fire. God has decreed it against the human race. God has said, your sin is great before me. I will judge you and find you guilty. We must not take that lightly. Just as judgment came for Eli, so judgment will come to the house of Adam. Though many generations have come and gone. But what else has God promised? God promised to Judah that a king would rise from his his, uh, family. And a king is rising from the family of Judah, David. And David is every bit as as much a sinner as everyone else. But God also made promises to David that, that his grace would be upon him, that he would sit on the throne. And so as much as David is guilty of treason and all the rest, God is protecting him, whether he flees to Ramah or to Nob. Saul can't touch him. So the question is, will we throw our lot in with the house of Eli or will we throw it in with the house of David? Will we seek to fatten ourselves on the sacrifices of the Lord or will we say that we belong to the son of David, the true king? And will we receive his grace upon us? You see, the Bible's not about be a better person be greater and more moral. The Bible is about what side are you on? Are you under God's justice? Or are you under God's grace? You see, David and Ahimelech were both guilty of conspiracy and treason. Under the law, they're both guilty. They both deserve to die. Ahimelech was put to death, but David ascended to the throne. Why? 
It's not that David was better than Ahimelech. It's that Ahimelech was under the justice of God and David was under the grace of God. So what of us? We're not better than anyone else who will fall at the final judgment. But are we under the justice of God? Or are we under the grace of God? To answer that question, you have to ask yourself, what do you make of Jesus? Is he your king? Have you given him your sin? Have you allowed him to die in your place? Are your sins buried in the grave with him? Do you believe that he has raised, been raised from the dead and your sins stay in the grave? Do you believe that though your body will die, God will raise it up? You see, God keeps his word. We've seen that. And he, he keeps his word about judgment. He also keeps his word about resurrection from the dead. But if you want to be raised from the dead, you have to believe the promises of God. If you believe the promises of God, then grace to you. But if you reject the promises of God, like Eli and his house, justice will come and find you. Let's pray. Oh God, what a difficult text. I pause now to give each of us an opportunity to think on your promises both of justice and of grace of eternal death and resurrection I pray Lord that we would find ourselves in the house of David not in the house of Eli forgive us Lord when we seek to domesticate you, take your grace for granted and scoff at your justice. We thank you that though our sins are many, your mercy is more if we but believe. In your name we pray. Amen.